We're going to be soaking in scripture today, so I didn't give you one passage. Just get ready, it's going to be coming at you quick. Um, but to begin, I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll get started. Oh God, I, I'm so thankful for this church. Knowing that as I, as I would come up here that I'm not necessarily speaking something from an experience or even the desire for an experience that others don't have or don't desire, but that we are in this together, just seeking your face, wanting intimacy with you, wanting to worship you, wanting to share the sight of you that we get with each other and say, see how good he is. Isn't our God amazing? And when we don't remember that, to, to lift one another's burdens up to you and to say, oh God, heal us because we're so broken. I pray that you'll speak this morning and you'll show us just the way to communicate with you. I praise in Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, I went running in my own 100-acre woods. It's this place um, kind of set by Kitsap Lake, and if you run up there, you can actually get all the way to Green Mountain. And about a half a year ago, I was running there, and I found a waterfall. It was, it was one of those times when I go running out there, it's like a, a run-walk, and it's not because I can't run, but I get so overwhelmed by the beauty that I just want to walk and enjoy it. Like, you know, I don't want it to get over too quickly. And so I'd stopped, and I was walking, and then there was this little, you know, what looked just like an animal trail. And I took it and just found this 30-foot cascading waterfall that was gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. And... And so this was the, my, I haven't been back there since then, and as I was coming towards it, about, about a half mile before it, there was a sign that someone had made that said, waterfall, need directions, call, and gave the number. And of course, my first reaction was, I'm going to throw that sign in the woods. <laughs> but... But knowing that my first impulse is not always correct, I just kept running and I found the waterfall. And it was actually, the, the trail's hard enough to find that I kind of got past it and I thought I'm too far. And so I went back and I, I found it and had a beautiful time. And then as I was leaving and I saw the sign again, I realized that once you pass that sign, there's this, you know, if you go on roads in the wilderness, sometimes there's like a kind of a dribbling creek that comes underneath it. And, and in that dribbling creek, it kind of has a, a little, you know, compared to the other one, a very weak cascading waterfall. And I thought, I wonder how many people passing the sign think this is the waterfall that they're talking about. How many people would be content with this waterfall without knowing that a half mile up the road is this paradise that no one really knows about. And, and I thought of that in reference to prayer, as that's what we're talking about for um, this, this six-week sermon series, is that prayer isn't 
natural for us. And oftentimes we stop at the point that we can do, right? And, and so in, in that waterfall sense, it was people, oftentimes they'd be on that road and they'd go, oh, look, here's some water, and they'd play in it without realizing that if they called for directions, paradise was around the corner, right? And prayer is like that, where we don't realize just how much we need to be taught about communicating with God. We don't realize that we need to be led to a place of communicating with God. So much of us don't really access the Holy of Holies because we think, well, I'm a Christian, it's mine, right? I, I just get on my knees and I communicate with God and, and, and we share this language of like, yeah, I just chatted with him the other day without realizing that, that the Bible is given to us to sh- give us stories and instruction about how really God is calling us to communicate with him and we're missing out. About 100% of us <laughs> probably are missing out on what it really means to communicate with God. So today we're going to be looking at, at the character of prayer through the lives of, of two men in particular, Moses and Elijah. And, and we're going to be led there through story. Oftentimes we just say, you know, just give it to me straight. And what we mean by that is someone just to go, you need to pray more. And we'll go, oh, that's so, that burns. <laughs> I know. I know, but the reason why the Bible gives gives us stories is because we need to see that it's a process. We need to see from the lives of men and women in the scripture what it looked like to actually become someone who communicates with God, right? Because it's not natural. It's not natural for us just to, to have healthy prayer lives. So, first we'll look at Moses. Moses was a stud. If you look at, at Moses and the stories that we remember about him, it was a man who defied Pharaoh. Right? And Pharaoh, that name doesn't mean much to us because, you know, we don't have pharaohs in our day and age. He was a, a man who defied an emperor. Right? He, he defied the greatest man in the land stood toe-to-toe with him and saw the pharaoh, the emperor's kingdom, crumble before him. And on his way out, just to slam the door, he parted the sea and consumed Pharaoh's army. But, but Moses himself, what he cherished the most wasn't those times. What he cherished the most was his time with God. And it is incomparable if you look at even the, any character in scripture you find a man who spoke face to face with God in Numbers 12 this is the way it remembers Moses and it's interesting because if you drop into Numbers 12 what you find is a conflict between Moses and his brother and sister because they think you're not so special And this is what happens. It says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. And this is what what Aaron says. They say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And it says, the Lord heard this. 
Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else in the face of the earth. And at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three came out, and then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions and I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He has a good relationship with God. God's got his back. <laughs> this is amazing. They speak against him and God goes, how, how dare you? You didn't even think twice to speak, about, uh, speak against him. But the character of Moses that was, that was drawn out in these passages was this, that Moses was more humble than any man who was alive. And just to show you that this characteristic isn't isolated to Moses, think, listen to this. Throughout scripture, the way humility is talked about, in, first, in Second Chronicles 7, Solomon's dedicating the temple, and this is what God says in response to Solomon's prayer. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send plagues among my people... It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Right? If my people would humble themselves, I will heal their land. In Psalm 25, it says, the Lord guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his ways. Who does God guide the humble? Proverbs 3, 34 says, God mocks the mockers but gives grace to the humble. In Isaiah 62, it says, This is the one I, the Lord, esteem, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. You know how he said, I speak clearly with Moses? How clearly is this spoken? Right? This is the one that I hang out with. The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Micah 6.8, he has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew 18, it says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. In James, it says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. God exalts humility. Elijah. Elijah, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, and one of the best stories when we talk about modern-day apologetics. During the time of Elijah, the king had made an unwise choice in marriage to a lady named Jezebel. And Jezebel is kind of synonymous with bad wife. And so he marries her, and, and she convinces Ahab, the king, that he should worship Baal. And so the whole kingdom kind of converts over to Baal, and, and Elijah stands against him in the power of God. And it comes to this time on Mount Carmel where 
Elijah comes out and he, he says, you know, we're just going to have a showdown here, like the old Western gunslinger styled, we're going to do this. It's happening in the middle of town, right? So they're on Mount Carmel, 400 prophets of Baal come, Elijah comes, and so he says, Whoever, whichever God answers by fire, he's the true God. And so the prophets of Baal dance around and Elijah makes fun of them. And then Elijah comes and he goes, and he goes, <laughs> he does. And then he, he goes, douse this altar three times with water. He's, I want you to know that this is a moist sacrifice, right? And so they, they douse it over and over again. And then he goes, Oh Lord, show these people today who the real God is. And all of a sudden, fire drops from heaven, consumes everything, and God's in the house. Right? It's, a, it's a big deal. Right? And, and over and over again, this is, this is what happens in the life of Elijah. Another time, he prays that it wouldn't rain, and so the people would remember their thirst for the true God. And the way it explains it in the book of James is this. It's so interesting. It boils down the, the life of, of Elijah to this. In, in James 5, starting in, in verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. And oftentimes we, we read the, this stories of a guy like Elijah or Moses, and we go, yeah, right, right. They had some special power. <laughs> but he was a man just like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. The prayer of a righteous man is effective. So it's the second characteristic we're going to look at is, is righteousness. And righteousness, since I know that's kind of a, a, a word that we don't use unless you're using it like that's righteous, right? And that doesn't really mean anything. So the word righteous literally in the scripture is it deals with both, with both ethic and conduct. But basically we're going we're gonna to boil that down to it's, a, it's literally a participation in the holiness of God. And holiness is another word we don't use too often. Literally, holiness is something that's unique to God, right? You cannot be holy unless God gives you holiness. Holiness means something that is different and set apart, right? So that means holiness is a characteristic that only God has, so people can only share in holiness if they share in God. So it's a, righteousness is a participation in holiness, by way of conduct, it's that what we do is participating in what God wants to do, right? In, in ethics, it's the same way. When we say something is good, it is good because God alone is good, so it's sharing in his qualities. I know it's kind of heady. So I'll, I'll jump in and show you that righteousness is not only something that Elijah values, but listen to these things as we read them. We're just gonna, I'm going to throw scripture at you. You're going to feel like you're drowning in it, but it's good. Soak in it. Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Right? We're talking about prayer here. Right? The, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The name of the Lord, it says in Proverbs 18, is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. 
In 1 Samuel, it says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. In Psalm 89, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you and walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. In Proverbs 14, 34, it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. In Isaiah 59, it says this. And this is actually, it's funny because right before this in Isaiah 59, it says, it says the arm of the Lord isn't too short to save and his ear isn't too dull to hear. And because and oftentimes, right, when we're praying, we're like, do you not hear me? Right? And, and, and Isaiah 59 says the ear of the Lord isn't too dull to hear, but it says, but your sins have separated you from God. And then, and then in 59, later in verse 15, it says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He was displeased that there was so much sin and nothing was being done about it. So he said, and he saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that no one could intervene. And it says, so his own arm works salvation and his own righteousness sustained him. And, and this is cool. Listen to this. It says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And do you guys remember, it just dawned on me this morning as I was reading this, where else does it talk about that? In Ephesians 6. And, and we are the ones that get to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, right? So he girds himself in these things, but then it says that he puts on the garment of vengeance and wraps himself in zeal as in a cloak. And you're like, why don't I get that? <laughs> That's not part of the armor of God. Vengeance isn't. Uh, that's really interesting to me, but it's probably a good thing. <laughs> Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So, so God had this beautiful relationship with Moses, this beautiful responding relationship to Elijah, and what marked their lives, humility and righteousness. But then we have to ask ourselves, is that because they were special? Or, or do Christians, do we assume Christians are heard because they're unique in some way, that, that God just listens to them? But listen to this. In Isaiah 64, it says, All of us have become like one who's unclean, and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so we go, so... So if you listen to the one who's righteous, but our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags, how does that work? Or in Romans where it says there's no one righteous, no one who does good, no one who seeks God, then how, how do we do it? God, if you're calling us to do that, how do we do it? And then there's a glimmer of hope in Matthew 9 where Jesus says, Learn, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinner. And so we begin to hear God meeting us in our state where we go, God, prayer is unnatural because I'm not naturally righteous. Prayer is unnatural to me because I'm not naturally humble. I'm naturally prideful, and the inclinations of my heart tend to be wicked. 
And so what do I do if my righteous acts are filthy regs, but it says that you listen to the righteous? And how is it that if I'm prideful, but, but it says you, what you want is somebody who walks humbly with you, and I don't walk that way. So listen to the lives of Moses and Elijah. Moses is a really interesting character where he grew up in Pharaoh's household. And in the, the sermon that Stephen gives in the book of Acts, it says that he was mighty in word and deed. He was a man who was a man's man and, and was just absolutely confident in his own ability. So confident in his own ability that he knew himself to be a Jew and he, he saw the people in their suffering and he tried to save them. He goes, I know, I know that I am meant to be the one who rescues his people. God has put me here to do that. And so what does he do? If you remember the story, this is what he does. He goes out and he sees one of his fellow Jews being oppressed. And so he kills the oppressor, thinking that that would possibly start this insurrection. And he, like he had led the armies of Egypt to victory, he would lead Israel as an army and overthrow, overthrow Pharaoh. But what happens? Well, he gets ratted out by his own people. And he has to escape to the land of Midian, where he spends 40 years. He spends 40 years as a shepherd in a desert. And by the end of that time, he was so humbled he was no longer the man's man. He was no longer the general that God comes to him and goes, okay, it's time, Moses. And Moses says this, he goes, I can't even speak, right? He was a man who was mighty in word and deed. And all of a sudden he comes, God comes to him and says, it's time. And he goes, I can't do that. And I have prayed, and I'm, I'm honest here, I've, I've prayed, God, at the times where I'm broken and hurting the most, don't make it 40 years, <laughs> right? Don't give me 40 years in the desert because Moses needed 40 years before he couldn't offer anything to God. And what happened was this, that God goes, do you not know who made the tongue? Do you know who did that? I made the tongue, Right? It's not your impressive oratory that is going to lead the people out of Egypt. It's not your strength. Right? I need somebody who will be humble. I'm going to give you 40 years in the desert. So if you want to be in the school of prayer, are you willing for 40 years in the desert to become a good prayer? Or are you so busy trying to save other people? Right? We don't realize the time God takes and invests in people so they can invest in other people. Jesus took 30 years before he ever entered public to teach other than this, this small random time we get and he's 11 years old, right? 30 years and we're like, God, what could you have done if, if Jesus started at the age of 20, right? But what was happening during that? He, Jesus was sharing in that humble existence right? What made Elijah the man who could do such incredible things and who we call righteous? It's this interesting thing right after everything happened on Mount Carmel and, and the people of Israel were saved, Elijah freaked out. 
had this emotional outburst and and he ran away. <laughs> he just ran. And there's this this part in his running where like an angel wakes him up and feeds him pancakes and sends him on his way and, and he's still running and finally he gets to this mountain where he's just hiding. <laughs> and he goes and God meets him at the mountain and he goes, Elijah, why are you here? <laughs> and this is what Elijah responds. He goes, he goes, I have been so zealous for God, but the Israelites have rejected him, right? And they're putting the servants of the Lord to death, and I'm the only one left. And this is what God reminds him of. He goes, first, Elijah, I've already called Elisha, and he's going to come hang out with you. But second of all, he goes, I've reserved 7,000 who have never bowed their knee to Baal. I'm the one who makes righteous. <laughs> it's not you. It's not you at all. And so oftentimes, it's crazy because we come at these things and we go, God, how can I finally access your throne? I mean, it says that in Jesus, like, it's, it's open, but why do I feel like I don't live at all in this communion that you call me to? And then we open the scripture, and it's like humility, righteousness, and we're like, okay, sign me up for that program. And then we read the stories of these guys, and we go, wow. That, like, I don't even know how to ask for that. Like, I wouldn't fashion that. <laughs> I wouldn't pray, God, give me 40 years in the desert, and then let me run away to a mountain, and you, you know. No, that's not how we do it. What it takes is this. What it takes to become a person who prays, accesses the throne, becomes humble and righteous, is someone who... absolutely makes himself available to God. Right? It's not a program. It's, it's not you holding that word humility and every day going, I need to be humble, I need to be humble, like, like I'm the worst person ever. Or like, or like us like doing this rigorous like ethics that we follow and so we're righteous. But, but listen to this, because I believe that, that Moses and Elijah shared something with the other men and women of scripture that we read and they, they loved God because they were not perfect people. Do you guys get that? Like you read the Bible and you're going like, I hope I don't do that, right? But I hope I do that. And, and you read them and, and I think they shared something and listen to Paul who I think was right on board with them and he said this. He says, but what was, what was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more... I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And gets this. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So what is this righteousness and this humility that is by faith? That isn't accessed through our own rigorous discipline or ability on our own. To go before God and go, look, I'm ready to, I'm ready to hear from you, I'm humble. Or look, look ready, I'm ready to hear from you, I'm righteous. <laughs> but this is the beginning of it when Paul goes, I consider everything else loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing God. And you hear that in Moses when he cries out and he goes, just show me your glory. Like, that's all I want. Right? Show me your glory. Right? And when we hear it in the prayers of the saints who are going, all that matters to me is him. Right? And you have no idea, you have no idea the course that God is going to set for you to teach you righteousness and humility. Right? Think of Peter, when, when he denied Jesus three times, and that definitely, that was not a part of his plan. <laughs> but, but before that happened, what happened? Jesus said, Satan has asked to, to tempt you, and I've allowed that, but I've prayed that after that happens, that you'll be restored and you'll go strengthen others, right? And Peter goes, never. I will, I will not. I will not do anything like that. And that happened, and then afterwards, he was so bitter, right? And he wept, it says he wept bitterly, and then afterwards, as he comes to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, do you love me enough to serve me? And he goes, I realize I can't. I don't, I don't have that in me. And then, and then remember that part where, where then Jesus, then, he, then Peter asked Jesus, he goes, what about him? And, and, and Jesus goes, it's not about him, Peter. It's about you. <laughs> Are you going to follow me? Right? Because you don't have the ability to foresee the grand adventure of faith God is going to bring you into if you consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. You don't know. But he is worth it. And that's what God's calling us to. Right? The great adventure of every single saint in the Bible, as you see, is Stephen, who was full of the Holy Spirit, and God used his death to launch the greatest missionary movement in the history of the church. Right? And how God uses that time and time again, if you consider everything loss as, as rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing God, then God will do things in you. God will make you humble beyond what you could ask or imagine. God will make you righteous beyond what you can ask or imagine. But if what you value is humility and what you value is righteousness, you, you might miss out because you're just trying to access it and then get to God, and God's going, no, this all happens. This all happens through relationship with me. So, so my prayer for us as, as we learn to pray is as we listen to this, going back to the example at the beginning of the lesser waterfalls, right? That we won't, we won't stay at these lesser waterfalls going, this is the grand adventure of knowing God. And then we read the Bible and we're like, but, but this doesn't look like my life. <laughs> because so many things in our lives are of greater value to us. And so if you want to know the grand adventure of knowing God um, and, and walking in the footsteps of the saints, right, who, who as it says in Hebrews 12, are just, are just waiting for us in heaven, 
cheering us on, going, it's worth it. It's worth it. It really is. Like, you won't believe it. It is worth it. It is so, so worth it. Give your life. Give everything you have. Give, give, give it away because it's worth it. You, there will be, there's so much joy awaiting you if, if you realize that it's, it's worth Consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing God. And you will be remembered as people who walked with him. So may we not be satisfied with lesser waterfalls, but may we pray that our hearts would break with humility. Right? And our, that character of our lives would be restored into righteousness because we value him above everything else. And that's, that's the way we pray. How often times do we, me included, go to our times in prayer and, and it takes us so long before we feel like we can access the throne and it's because greater, everything else is greater in our lives. And God's going... It's going, it's, if all these things are greater, you're not praying to me. So, so when we pray that God would restore us, restore to us that joy of salvation where we consider him to be the greatest reward ever. And so as we worship and as we, as we take communion, Consider those things and the, and the grace he's given us through Jesus Christ to not do that by ourselves. Because as we take communion, it's remembering what Jesus did for us because we could not do it for ourselves. Because we can't do humility ourselves. We can't do righteousness for ourselves. And so Paul writes this remembrance. He says, For as I have received from the Lord, I pass on to you the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. (laughs) You couldn't even ask for that. (laughs) right? It's broken for you. And he says, this is the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you take the cup and eat the bread, it says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I hope, I hope communion as you take it is just a reminder of the great worth of God. Right? And him calling us to participate, calling us to participate in that worth. And I'll share one more thing, and I shared it briefly last week. But it's just of the jealous nature of God, that God is jealous for our affection in that way. And it says, he's so jealous of our affection, he goes, I'm not going to share it with any other. And that's what communion, we remember in communion, is because Jesus coming wasn't something that we were going um, we, we couldn't like identify that as our need, right? We couldn't say like, what I need is God to die for me. <laughs> we wouldn't jump to that conclusion. But, but God, because he so jealously loved us, 
he gave himself for us. And while he was on the cross and no one was identifying him as God, they were just heaping insults and everything on him. What was happening at that moment was was God going, I'm so jealous for your love that I'm going to make a way for you to be restored to me. I'm going to make a way for you to be restored to me. And just wait till you get that. (laughs) Because when you get that, you will see that there is... There's nothing greater. And when Paul, Paul grabbed a hold of that, that's when he said, I, everything else is, is rubbish compared to that. So, so communion is a sense of worship in that. What we sing is a sense of worship in that. And, and I pray during your prayer times this week that your prayer times will be a time, and if it isn't, if it is a struggle for you, that your prayer times will be a fight, a labor going God, before 40 years, I pray that you will show me <laughs> that nothing else compares to you. So I'll pray for us, then we'll worship together. God, in Isaiah 66, you said that, that you're with those who are, are humble and contrite and tremble at your word, and I pray that if not in the last 40 minutes, I pray that soon, maybe during our time of music, or communion, or maybe when we leave here, or maybe in the morning when we wake up and read our Bibles, that we will tremble at your word. God, so much of what we speak and what we read aren't realities to us because everything else is of greater value to us. And God, by your mercy, I pray that you will reverse that, that you are of such great value to us that the world becomes alive as we, as we see it through your eyes and you going, see what I love. <laughs> I love this world and I'm so jealous for its affection and, and we would participate in that. God, that we can boldly approach your throne because we just value you and we worship you. God, we can only do this by your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things, amen.